You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have Moss Robeson, who is going to tell us about the CIA and how they funded Nazis in Ukraine and also talk a little bit about Ukraine's problems today after the Euromaidan um, revolution. Mm-hmm, I think so, yeah. Hello, Mas. Um, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you ended up in Ukraine? Sure, yeah. Well, thank you for having me on this podcast, first of all. But um, I'm 22 now, and so at the end of high school, I was did like a sort of, I guess, sort of stereotypical trip to Europe. I went around. I ended up in Ukraine uh, briefly, and that was the summer of 2013. At the time, I didn't really know anything about Ukraine, but I made friends over there. And then, you know, after I left and they had the protest start, started, that caused me to, you know, follow up, start to uh, pay attention to what was going on in Ukraine. But at the time, I didn't really know anything. Initially, I was, because I, I knew people who were participating in it and were in support of those protests. Um, also, when I went there, everywhere I went, people seemed to talk about their president, Yanukovych, kind of like people do about Trump in the U.S. or everyone, you know, he was, I only heard like very negative things about him. So in that time period, I initially discounted things I read online about, you know, neo-Nazis taking part in protests as Russian propaganda. And then afterwards, it came as a big shock to me to find out that, you know, some of the kids I had met were, like one of them was a history student who was able to kind of act as like a tour guide for me when I was uh, in Kiev and tell me a lot about the history and just uh, was really great. But then I learned afterwards, they went, they go to school, or at least did, um, in Lviv, which is like the cultural capital of Western Ukraine and sort of the center of Ukrainian nationalism. But they go to school on Stefan Bandera Street. So that kind of caused me to, you know, like re-examine everything. And ever since, it's been this rabbit hole of learning more and more about that history. Okay, let's just uh, quickly mention recently, what did they do to Stefan Bandera in December? In December? Yeah. No, I mean, I think there's a lot of, I mean, there's been a lot of glorification of Bandera since um, 2014. So I'm not quite sure what you're referring to in this particular I've been more and more like also. I'm referring to Stefan Bandera Day. Oh, okay. No, you mean um, for January first, his birthday? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, his yeah, his birthday is New Year's. I mean, to be true, to be honest, as I get more and more absorbed in the history of you know Bandera's rehabilitation, I've kind of I haven't been as caught up with current events. But the the government of Ukraine has seemingly increasingly participated in the so-called like banderization of society. It's not, I kind of think of it similar to like the Donald Trump administration where Trump himself may not be a neo-Nazi. You know, we don't necessarily have a, a neo-Nazi government in Washington, but it's certainly one that caters to the far right and to even neo-Nazi like ideas and uplifts. Them. I think it's a somewhat sort of similar situation in Ukraine in that regard. So maybe the obvious starting point is who is Stefan Bandera? Bandera is, um, Bandera was, he was, um, I guess first of all, let me start with the the group he was a part of, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, was a, a terrorist group in uh, what is now Western Ukraine, with the brief exception of um, about a year or so during World War One, What is now Western Ukraine was never under the rule of Moscow or St. Petersburg until the, um, as a result of the Nazi-Soviet Pact of 1939. So in, in the interwar period, that was what is now Western Ukraine was Poland officially. And so it was the Ukrainian minority in Poland that was, you know, radicalized, underwent this process of fascistization and what Bandera came out of. So the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists was created 
in the late 20s, by the turn of the 30s, it was going. Bandera was an early member. He was younger than me when he got involved. And by the time he was my age, he was a leader of the group in Western Ukraine. And by in 1934, he had, or 1933, he became the, the leader of the group in Western Ukraine or Poland, depending on what you want to call it. But by that point, the, the leadership of the group was in exile in Western Europe and in Berlin in particular. So, but he was their leader in uh, Western Ukraine and he ordered the assassination of a lot of people, but in particular the interior minister of Poland, which was their most high profile killing. And for that, he and his deputy, or one of them, Mykola Labed, were sentenced to life imprisonment. They broke out of the war in, or they broke out at the, once World War II started and very quickly, uh, create a new faction of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, or the OUN, known now as the OUNB for Bandera, which kind of became like the more radical dominant faction of the group. And then both factions collaborated with the Nazis. Bandera kind of throughout, uh, in the 30s, sort of became, and World War II kind of became like the spiritual leader of the Ukrainian nationalists in Western Ukraine. When did they started, I guess, in 1941, Germany invaded. And when did they started collaborating with the Nazis? Well, so the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, it's a little hazy, but well, actually also that group, the OUN, was came out of another terrorist group, its predecessor, Ukrainian Military Organization, or UVO. They, their main, um, they both organizations, I guess, yeah, starting in the 20s and then into the 30s and 40s or into World War II, collaborated with um, the German military intelligence in particular. And that was led by uh, Wilhelm Canaris, who was executed in 1944 for, you know, his uh, proximity to the German military conspiracies to kill Hitler. There wasn't, I don't know, I think the, the, the Ukrainian nationalists did not have a friend in Hitler's regime, although they convinced themselves otherwise. And there were factions within Nazi Germany, like Alfred Rosenberg and Canaris, and others who sort of went support to the idea of Ukrainian independence or supporting the OUN. But at the end of the day, you know, they did not have Berlin's like blessings. And so that became a conflict, which sort of really interrupted their collaboration during the war. But then that was reignited at the very end but they they that was i don't know they they the members of the OUMB did collaborate with with a whole range of sectors of nazi germany but it was really german military intelligence the abwehr that actually supported the oun throughout the 30s and so okay um i guess uh i saw a picture on your twitter about the oun uh like sending jews to the concentration camps is that true i don't not quite well so there's a i guess a few things i'd say to that so there was um there was a, a gestapo school that um Lebed is reported to have been um, involved with right after he escaped prison and a lot of those, I guess, the pupils of that, like Gestapo school of basically they were trained in torture techniques and other stuff. Um, a lot of those people were being trained to be camp guards and other stuff. But apparently also some of Bandera's secret police um, came out of there. But I don't, I mean, to my knowledge, the OUN and, OU, um, and its factions were not sending Jews to German concentration camps, although the in the middle of the war, the or towards the end of it, they um, created a, a guerrilla-like army called the Ukrainian Insurgent Army. And it's pretty much a myth that they fought the Germans, although you know most of them defected from, um, well, they infiltrated and then defected from the auxiliary German police units that were um, at the front lines of the, of the what's known as you know, the Shoah by bullet. So they weren't sending Jews to concentration camps. They were shooting them in mass numbers in 1941, 1942, and then joined the Ukrainian insurgent army, which was mostly concerned with the ethnic cleansing of Poles. But they also tried to kill as many Jews as they could. And they actually set up their own sort of mock work camps or concentration camps where they were, I mean, I think small scale, like farms and stuff, but they were, there was actually the, um, the only really like academic uh, biography that's written about Bandera 
alleges that you know there were there are some accounts of of some Jews running from like turning themselves into the Germans because they considered it a lesser evil to you know facing the wrath of Ukraine nationalists who might find them hiding out in the woods and stuff. It's complicated the relationship between the Germans and the OUN and OUNB, but it was definitely one that like they did collaborate. And even when they weren't collaborating, they had a lot of similar aims to, yeah, I mean, the Ukrainian nationalists kind of absorbed a lot of the same ideas. Okay. Um, and what can we forward to right after the war? What, what did the U.S. government do? So first, what they didn't do is the CIA did not really support Bandera, but they supported, they ended up supporting what you can think of as like an emerging anti-Bandera faction of Bandera's organization and led by Mykola Labed, who throughout the war was basically the de facto leader of the OUNB in Ukraine because Bandera and his other deputy who remained loyal to him Yaroslav Stetsko, and who, um, you know, was supposed to be like the prime minister of their, you know, um, independent Ukraine. They were briefly or temporarily uh, interned by the Germans as sort of like privileged political prisoners. And in that time, Lebed was in charge of the organization. And so after the war, the OUNB leadership, as I think of it, kind of got used to operating without Bandera's dictatorial oversight. And, you know, so after the war, there was this clash within the OUNB where these two other main factions came out of. So the long story short is the U.S. government didn't support Bandera, but his wartime allies turned post-war rivals. But in long term, it kind of worked to Bandera and his successors' benefit because you know, in order to work with Michael Labed and others, the U.S. government, the CIA and others really ate up and kind of helped disseminating their version of, or their whitewashed version of history and let them tell their own history, according to which, you know, they were not only just as opposed to the Germans as the Soviets, but particularly anti-Nazi and that they uh, not only didn't kill Jews, but that they helped them and, you know, the CIA didn't, the CIA recognized Bandera as a fascist Nazi collaborator, but they convinced themselves that, you know, a lot of his deputies were moderate in comparison. You recovered a book called Ukrainian Nationalism. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, it's, it's well known. It's not, and I guess to some, it has been largely, I guess, sort of discounted for various reasons among historians of Ukraine and Ukrainian nationalism. But it was the first book to be, uh, first academic book to be written, at least in this country, or at least in English, about the subject. The guy, John A. Armstrong, he was a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I think during World War II, he was in the army or something. I think he came in contact with the OUNB circles, which formed in... They, they moved to... Um, they followed the original OUN leadership to Western Europe after the war. And so he basically wrote his book according to what they told them the acknowledgement section, he kind of names all these Ukrainian Nazi collaborators and even their German allies, including uh, Alfred Rosenberg's representative to the Wannsee Conference. He wasn't the first to, you know, buy into the whitewashed narrative, but I think he really laid the foundation for academia in the United States and more broadly in the West to just reflect the lies that Western Ukraine's Nazi collaborators have, you know, tried to tell the world. You know, even today, uh, the Harvard University's director of Ukrainian research, he even, his book on Ukraine, uh, Sergei Ploki, is, uh, repeats a lot of these sort of myths about the OUN and the Ukrainian insurgent army, such as that they were, you know, 100,000 strong and fought the Germans too. So it's like, we, we still have a lot of these lies about history that, Largely go back to this book, I think, that Armstrong wrote. But 
even he was, that book came, that was written in the mid 50s. So that was about a decade after US intelligence agencies started collaborating with the OUNB and hearing their side of the story without really caring what anyone else had to say. And the cost of producing and recording, we need your help. Please become a patron. It is as cheap as $5 a month and you get exclusive access to all our patron-only content. To become a patron, go to http colon slash slash www.patreon.com slash historic underscore Lee. Um, it, this sounds a lot like the Lithuanian where they pretended that they fought both the Soviets and the Nazis. But... Was the U.S. government trying to undermine the Soviet Union when they funded, uh, fund, I don't know, when they collaborated with the with the OUN? Yeah, so I think the the I think to a large extent the U.S. government tried to do what Nazi Germany tried to do at the end of the war, which is to utilize the Ukrainian insurgent army as a sort of stay behind group. In case of the Germans, it was to you know to slow down the the Red Army as it marched towards Berlin. And I think that did, I think the the UPA, as its acronym is, did manage to tie down the Red Army and slow them a bit. But um, obviously it didn't, you know, wasn't enough. The last Christmas of the war, or two days after Christmas 1944, the Germans parachuted a guy, Yuri Lopatinsky, into Western Ukraine to make contact with the UPA. And about a year later, he made contact with the uh, strategic services unit, which was, was like a predecessor to the CIA. That, and he largely sold them on the idea of their collaborating. And also, this important uh, OUNB priest, he nego- who negotiated the, uh, who like negotiated with German intelligence to rekindle their collaboration in 1944, and for Germany to release Bandera and all these other political prisoners that they had in exchange. The guy who brokered that, the CIA made him, he became their like principal contact, noting that he had played this leading role. So like in negotiating with the Germans, but the the US government and the CIA's attempts to use the UPA as this like stay behind group already behind the Iron Curtain, you know, as opposed to, you know, most people associate the like stay behind groups with the like Gladio network in Western Europe in case the Soviet Union or whatever was invaded Western Europe, that they would have these groups there ready to do sabotage, but they're, you know, waiting in Western Europe, whereas UPA is already behind the Iron Curtain, but that failed drastically. And so by the early 50s, they gave up on that. The main thing is that the main thing they did after that with Ukrainians was they smuggled, illegally smuggled Michael Lebed, this war criminal, trained by the Gestapo. And they knew he was trained by the Gestapo. It's one of the things I think they liked about him is they, they smuggled him equals to the US. UPA. Oh, sorry. Or no, the CIA and Herb State Department. It's a little unclear who exactly, but he was smuggled to the US by the US government illegally, and the CIA put him in charge of this Ukrainian research corporation to uh, basically, you know, send like propaganda into the Soviet Union or Soviet Ukraine to promote nationalism in Soviet Ukraine. But what's really messed up about that, I think, in part, is that there was a memo, I think it was in 1967, where they acknowledged some of that material was going to make its way into the Ukrainian-American community, too. So it's like the CIA, uh, I think they actually, you know, the CIA isn't supposed to operate domestically and not supposed to, you know, propagandize U.S. citizens, but they considered a loophole for the anti-Soviet emigre groups in the United States. You know, the Ukrainian-American community was basically, and other Eastern European immigrant groups were considered fair game. And although they did largely were headquartered, the publishing corporation was centered in New York and Munich, but they had an office, I think, in Munich, basically for that get around in case that that was going to be an issue that their CIA is funding a propaganda network in New York or was. But it was, um, it's the proponents of that research corporation called Prologue considered it extremely successful. I don't know. I think there's 
I think it's kind of unclear to what extent, like what effect it really had on Soviet Ukrainians who, you know, I think the vast majority of them totally rejected the OUN and OUNB's ideology and politics, and it was completely foreign to them. But the prologue, like there was, the U.S. government had a very much like a moderating sort of influence on the Ukrainian Nazi collaborators that brought here. So they toned down their rhetoric a lot, but they still like propagated these lies about their past. A lot of them were wanted war criminals, right? The Soviet Union asked for them and they didn't give it to them? Mm-hmm. So like I said, the CIA didn't support Bandera, but before that, the U.S. counterintelligence corps, so like U.S. military intelligence, did shield Bandera from being um, turned over to the Soviets who wanted him as a war criminal because they felt that it would ruin their relationship or their ability to work with other Ukrainian nationalists if they let the Soviets get to Bandera. Even if they didn't want to work with Bandera, they didn't want to let the Soviets get him and presumably kill him or execute him. But then also Michael Labed was, of course, also a war criminal and a, a known international terrorist because he, he actually oversaw the, or was at least accused of by the Polish government of overseeing the assassination of the interior minister of Poland. And something really interesting about that, Ivan Kaczynowski, um is the one who discovered these documents, but the actual gunman in that case who killed the interior minister of Poland, he didn't go to jail or prison because he escaped the country and he made his way to Latin America. And in 1941, around the time that um, the Nazis are about to invade the Soviet Union, the Secret Service was alerted to the fact, or at least it believed, that that same gunman was on a mission from, from the Germans to assassinate FDR. and they actually suspected the um, this like very high-ranking priest who was sympathetic to the OUN, Ivan Buchko was his name, of sheltering the guy in Philadelphia. And wouldn't you know that like five years later, that same priest helps uh, the U.S. government get in touch with Michael Lebed and co., who, of course, Lebed was that same gunman's former superior. And it's just wild. You know, I don't know. It's And then 40 years after that, you've got Bandera's loyal deputy who doesn't turn against him and also wasn't supported by the CIA. Yaroslav Stetsko, he gets the last laugh and he's making a speech in the Roosevelt, Roosevelt Hotel in New York City in 1981. You know, so it's, it's all just bad. The Stetsko got to testify in front of the House on American who McCarthy's. Yes. Mm-hmm. What another irony about that is that the um, the House on American Activities Committee largely got started by, or was largely started with um, the Dives Committee in the '30s, and it was right at the outbreak of World War II that. Uh, Martin Dyes, who was sort of like the Joseph McCarthy of his day, came out and said he wanted to um, to uh, to force the disclosure of the records of the Communist Party, or the U.S. Communist Party, and the German American Bund. What really inspired him to do that was the testimony of the editor of Svoboda, not to be confused with the today's neo-Nazi political party of the same name. The word means freedom or liberty, but Svoboda is the name of um, the oldest Ukrainian language newspaper in the United States, and um, it started as a largely socialist organ. But um, by, you know, by the 30s, it was extremely anti-communist, and the former editor-in-chief of it went to the Dyes Committee, and, and he testified that, the, that Svoboda and, to a large extent, the Ukrainian-American community was under the influence of the OUN leadership in Berlin. They were, that they were fundraising for them and all this stuff. And he, Dyes and others, were believed him and made statements such as saying, you know, because the, the, the OUN had a, like a branch in the United States, which is still around. The original OUN called the Organization of Defense, or Organization for the Rebirth of Ukraine. And the OUNB created its other, in 1946, created its own branch in the U.S. called the Organization for the Defense of Four Freedoms of Ukraine. But the, the first one 
like I said, was called out like one of the original inceptions of House on American Activities when it was investigating Nazi espionage in the United States. It was called out as a total like, you know, front for, for the Nazis. And then like almost 20 years later, a former McCarthy aide who part in grilling Paul Robeson for being un-American, to which Paul Robeson, they're asking Paul Robeson like, oh, why don't you just go to Russia and stay there? And he's saying, you know, I'm going to, because, you know, my father was a slave and I'm uh, trying to fight the, what I see is the, the rising neo-fascist cause in this committee. And then, you know, soon after that, Stetsko is there before the House on American Activities Committee, first time in the United States, and they're telling him he's a great guy and a fantastic uh, leader. So it's, it's all just... Were, were they able to commit any acts of sabotage within the Soviet Union? If so, what? So... Yes, especially in the first years. I think by the 50s, early 1950s, the Ukrainian nationalist, like anti-Soviet resistance movement was pretty much wiped out. And the Soviet Union, like, used typical kind of like Stalin to take care of that problem. You know, they like sent hundreds of thousands of people to Siberia, Siberia and, you know, just a whisper of a rumor of association Ukrainian nationalists could, but in the especially in the immediate years after World War II, and I guess as the Soviets were advancing on Berlin, the UPA did kill, like assassinate a lot of Soviet officials, particularly the um, secret police. But overall, the uh, the sectors of the U.S. government and others who supported the Ukrainian nationalists, for the most part, really overinflated their potential to have their revolution or whatever. There were some CIA analysts who determined by the turn of the 50s to play no serious role if and when there was a war with the Soviet Union, because that was the whole justification for supporting them, is that so many people believed late 40s that World War III was imminent, so that was the point of supporting them. I mean, I think a big reason that a lot of this history is sort of hidden and kind of swept under the rug is that, at least from the perspective of the powers that be in the United States, is that not only was this history, uh, this relationship embarrassing because you're dealing with war criminals and Nazi collaborators, but it was a total failure. And at the end of the day, did nothing to benefit the American people in like really any way whatsoever. Uh, um, obviously, like a lot of it. I've mm -hmm. never seen the CIA benefit anyone with something funny in corporations. Uh -huh. But can you tell me what happened in the turn of the 60s? Okay. Well, I would say because by, by the, you know, so like the CIA, like as I, as I said, I, as I think of it, the OUNB basically split in two in 1948, in the summer of 48, at which point the CIA really enthusiastically for throughout the Cold War supported the quote-unquote anti-Bandera faction or the quote-unquote moderate faction of the OUNB, whereas the British soon after that got behind Bandera and Stetsko for a few years. Even they realized that Bandera's group was useless and especially his faction was totally infiltrated by the Soviets' intelligence to the point where they speculated that his entire network was Turned, which is a whole other dimension of this. But the point is that they were dropped. Bandera was dropped by Western intelligence by the mid to late 50s. And he was assassinated in 59, at which point Stetsko basically emerged as the new leader of that faction. Just kind of in the 50s, you know, sort of when McCarthyism was on the decline, as I've read one, I can't remember who said this, but as they put it, McCarthyism sort of metastasized in the private sector as it was repudiated in Congress and elsewhere. And sort of the same thing with support for, at least in the case of Ukraine's Nazi collaborators and the OUNB, is that when they were ditched by uh, Western governments is when they ended up linking up with all these private anti-communist groups. Their support in the United States almost kind of took off more without the CIA. So who were the private groups? Supporting them? Um, I think the main thing is that so in 1946, Yaroslav Stetsko created, or the OUNB created and put Stetsko as the leader for life of this thing called the Anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations, which was basically a, a coalition of like-minded groups 
uh, anti-Soviet groups and uh, nationalities that basically held themselves to be the legitimate government in exile for what they called the captive nations of the Soviet Union. And so that, you know, was not just Eastern Europe. It was the Baltics and some Asian groups in the Caucasus Caucasus region. And um, But a large part of that came from Gerhard von Mend, who was a leading advisor in Alfred Rosenberg's Nazi Ministry of the Occupied Eastern Territories. They created these, like, national committees. And a lot of those were recycled afterwards and joined the ABN or the Anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations, which, and in the 50s, Stetsko went to Taiwan and made a deal with the um, Asian People's Anti-Communist League. And together, by the mid-60s, they created the what became the World Anti-Communist League, which kind of just like brought together some of the most unsavory anti-communists around the world, including a lot of death squads from Central America and stuff. But in terms of in the U.S., in the year Bandera was killed, 1959, earlier that summer, the United States government signed into law Captive Nations Week, which, and a accompanying Captive Nations Resolution, which was a, a whole a symbolic effort meant to commit the United States to liberate all the communist, quote-unquote, captive nations of the world. The guy who wrote that resolution and then created and led the National Captive Nations Committee for decades to oversee the annual Captive Nations Week celebration, which continue to this day every third week of July. The U.S. president since Eisenhower every year since 59 has declared third week of July Captive Nations Week. And it's a really absurd thing that it continues today. The guy who created that was named Lev Dobryansky, and he was also the longtime leader of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America. And he was like a free market economist and just generally like far right politically he was he basically was he was extremely well connected and he was a part of the american security council which i think wes McLuhan was his name characterized it as the uh, personification of the military industrial complex it was just full of retired officials from the fbi and cia and the military and elsewhere. So he had that, and he was also connected to John Birch Society and just all kinds of... He also, the other thing is the... A lot of people are familiar with the Republican Party's Southern strategy, but they also had a quote-unquote ethnic strategy, which, you know, notably did not apply to Jews or Black people, but the Republican National Committee was trying to... was trying to win over the votes of these anti-Soviet emigrate communities. That really got instituted in like the 60s and 70s, but it goes back for that. As for the Ukrainian division, Lev Dobryansky was an early leader of that. So he actually, I don't think anyone knows this, he accused Mykola Lebed, the, the guy trained by the Gestapo, the CIA was supporting. In the 60s, he accused him of being soft on communism. All right, he was, and he also got Stetsko, his his visa to the United States in 1958, when at that point CIA and the State Department was vehemently opposed to letting him come to this country. And that's how he got to testify before the House on American Activities Committee. But I see Lev Dobryansky as a champion of the Bandera people in the United States during the Cold War. And he's kind of the one, in my opinion, who most serve integrate Ukraine Nazi collaborators. They're like-minded Ukrainian nationalists in the United States with the Republican Party sectors of the military-industrial complex and just otherwise far-right anti-communist circles in the United States. Can we fast forward to the 1980s? And I'm looking at a photo of Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush honoring Yaroslav Stetsko. Yes. And so at that time, Dobryansky was Reagan's ambassador to the Bahamas. Holy which, God! <laughs> so he could, which I think was, was sort of like... Wait, wait who was... Uh, one more. Can you repeat the name of the person who yeah, was... Yeah, his uh, name Lev, or Dr. Lev Dobryansky, D-O-B-R-I-A-N-S-K-Y. Mm-hmm. I'm not 100% sure I'm pronouncing Yep, you that. got it. Correct. Yeah, like I said, he was... He also, I think in the 70s, created the, like, the... I forget, I'm, can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was sort of like the Republican Ukrainian Association or something like that. So he was basically, he basically got his spot as at least the Republican leader of the Ukrainian-American community to a large extent. Though also the year Stetsko made it to the White House, 
Lev's daughter, Paula, joined the National Security Council. And she's now, she's a relatively obscure figure to most people, but she's actually one of the most highly respected neocons today. She was one of the original signatories of the Project for a New American Century. And, but yeah, so actually the thing is, Stetsko, yeah, so Stetsko, after a long time, the U.S. government, others, you know, saying he's bad news while they're working with his former allies is that the World Anti-Communist League basically got connected to the Reagan administration. It got actually involved in the Iran-Contra scandal even. John Singlaub, who was working with Oliver North to arm Contras when that was the point after which Congress had forbade U.S. government sending arms to them, he, be, he, was a, he became the chairman of the World Anti-Communist League in 1984. But that was not before he went and visited Stetsko at his headquarters in Munich and before he celebrated the UPA's 40th birthday party on Capitol Hill as a guest speaker. So I personally, I see the the way that Stetsko, long story short, gets to the White House is the World Anti-Communist League really got linked up with the Reagan administration. That's what gave them all that access. But meanwhile, you see, as I said, Dobryansky gets into the administration. And also someone else who was involved was Dobryansky's mentee, who became an aide in the Reagan White House and had previously served as the executive director of his National Captive Nations Committee. Her name, born Catherine Chumachenko, went on to become the first lady of Ukraine when she married Viktor Yushchenko. And personally, it's my, I mean, I, don't, I, I suspect that she's the one who convinced Yushchenko to declare Bandera a hero of Ukraine, which is like the Ukraine equivalent of the American Presidential Medal of Freedom. So this, there is like this whole, a lot, I see Dobryansky as like a very pivotal figure in this whole history. But the thing is the CIA really did not like him. They're, some people who have accused, said that he was working with the CIA, but from what I've seen, the CIA only had like negative things to say about him because he was, as they said, more and more under the influence of the Bandera people. So now it seems that, can, let's talk about who came into power in Ukraine after the uh, dissolving of the Soviet Union and how did the Svoboda and, I know it's all probably a lot of big question, but how did the Svoboda and the Azov Battalion get where they're are now okay so i'll say i guess long story short is that all right and the people say neo-nazis which like some of them are neo-nazis not all of them are neo-nazis they were all like very fringe during the 1990s they saw more prominence as the 2000s and the 2010s came and went the i guess yeah i think azov is sort of the seems to be the ones to watch out for today the most Whereas, you know, a few years ago, right sector was the one, was all the rage. Okay, Svoboda started in the 90s as the Social National Party of Ukraine, as opposed, you know, to the National Socialism. They, they call themselves Social Nationalists. And they had a, what's called a Wolf's Angel swastika. Anyone looking at it would think it's like just a poorly or an incomplete swastika. And they claim it's not, that it's just a, the I and the N superimposed to for the idea of the nation, but they were a neo-Nazi party. And that was founded by Svoboda's leader, Ola Tyanibot, Andriy Parabi, who led its paramilitary branch called the Patriot of Ukraine, who he is now Ukraine's Speaker of Parliament. But at that point, the SNPU was, was told by Roman Sobchanik was in, in 1999, this guy wrote that the SNPU was the least influential of the three main parties on the radical right of Ukraine, one of them being the Congress of Ukrainian Nationalists, which was founded by Yaroslav's wife, Yaroslava Stetsko, who was also with him at the White House when he went, and he died in 86. And so she moved back to Ukraine after independence and created this party, the, uh, the Congress of Ukrainian Nationalists, which had its own paramilitary branch called Trident. And a leader of Trident is the guy who ended up creating and leading right sector. But so in 2004, the SNPU, Social National Party, reinvented itself, kind of like the OUNB did in 1944, where they distanced themselves from their most extreme elements, or some of them, mainly 
the doing away with the Patriot of Ukraine, their paramilitary branch in Paraby left and he became a politician. And that's where his like whole political career kind of came from. And um, but the Patriot of Ukraine was then later revived it as the paramilitary group to another political group called the Social National Assembly, if I haven't got that mistaken. But then they continue to fly the yellow and black Wolf's Angel swastika flag of the SNPU. And so they also joined Right Sector, but then they created Azov, which is today like the most prominent neo-Nazi group in Ukraine and is part of the National Guard. I think something, it's ironic, you know, or I don't know, it's just history and the way it's interesting how it repeats itself is that the, the so the Congress Ukraine Nationalist Yaroslav Stetsko's group, which was basically a, a party of OUNB emigres who, who went to the, the West during the Cold War and then returned. One of those co-founders was uh, Roman Zavarich, who was uh, also born in the U.S., and was involved with the World Anti-Communist League and the Anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations. And he's now alleged to be one of Azov's liaisons to their international supporters. So it's like interesting how this whole international network seems to still be relevant today in terms of building the support for Azov, which has now got its eyes allegedly on expanding, becoming an international movement. Seems like the State Department under Hillary Clinton and John Kerry friendly with the these Nazis. Is there any explanation for this? It'd be interesting to find out a few decades from now when stuff is declassified, the truth of it all. I would like to, to remind people of, in the same vein that I don't see this history necessarily of Bandera's rehabilitation, a CIA conspiracy as much as CIA blowback. And, you know, you, people, a lot of people will say that, oh, the United States government orchestrated a neo-Nazi coup in Kiev. Some people forget that the Obama administration brokered a deal to end the protests that would have kept Yanukovych in power a little longer till early elections could be held. It was a veteran of the Congress of Ukrainian Nationalist, Detsko's group, that went on stage on the Maidan and made the fateful speech saying, you know, Yanukovych, get out or we're gonna overthrow you by force. And that's when he fled the country. I think when you listen to the, the you know, the infamous phone uh, call between Victoria Newland, Assistant Secretary of State, and Jeff Pyatt, the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine at the time, as Pyatt says to Newland, we want to try to land jelly side up on this one. So, you know, it's it spins the democracy promotion strategy of the United States government in times of crises that the United States government swoop in and secure the most influence. I do think the United States government, to some extent, is largely responsible for manufacturing, like, I mean, Russia too, I think both powers kind of manufactured this crisis, but are like, are largely are responsible for it, share responsibility for it. But I, I think, I don't necessarily think the State Department wanted to put neo-Nazis into power, but as Newland said to Pyatt, she wanted the, the National Endowment for Democracy supported candidate, uh, Yatsenyuk, who's like a center-right politician to become prime minister, which he did. But as she said, she wanted him talking to Tiani Bok, the neo-Nazi Sobota leader, four, every, four times a week, which is more than every other day. And I think really it, it's, I don't know if it's, I don't know, at that point, the Sloboda party was the politics in Ukraine. All the main political parties are so corrupt and have such little popular support. It was Sloboda among the anti-Yonukovych opposition parties that had the most grassroots support. I think they were kind of just working with what they could, but it was, you know, I don't know. It, it's it's complicated. I don't, they definitely did include them in the mix and green-lighted, I think, Yatsenyuk's welcoming Svoboda into that sort of opposition coalition. But I don't, I don't think the United States government wanted a so-called neo-Nazi coup in Kiev. I guess it's kind of like they didn't really want, foresee ISIS, uh, to, a follow-up to Saddam Hussein, but it's kind of like their policies led to that. I think it's, I think it's, yeah, I think it's something. Somewhat like that, yeah. And now it's the, you know, Azov's leader who says he wants to lead a global crusade against Jews and other so-called, like, subhumans. He's very emboldened by the fact the United States, by the, that the Ukrainian government, you know, now promotes uh, the rehabilitation of, you know, Bandera's memory. It's like the, the Ukrainian government has really kind of weaponized the rhetoric of the far right 
I think, sort of to shore up their own legitimacy and then to crush any political opposition, you know, just using these sort of nationalist slogans. But it's not necessarily because that Poroshenko or necessarily even far right or that enthusiastic about Banderas, but that their grip on power is tenuous enough that, you know, they feel that that's kind of, I guess, what they need to do or what will shore up their power. But it's, it's really, yeah, they're just kind of building, yeah, they're building up support for, for the far right. To, it's like people talk about a neo-Nazi coup in Ukraine in 2014. I think the more people simplify, simplify it to that sort of narrative is they miss the risk of an actual neo-Nazi coup happening, you know, down the road. Can Ukraine, do you believe they can get fix this neo-Nazi problem they have? Or what do you foresee for Ukraine? I mean, I'm no expert by any means um, on politics in Ukraine. I uh, I don't speak Ukrainian. Um, or re- I don't know the language. So that really limits my ability to really get the proper perspective on what's happening. Because, of course, it's so limited what, you know, is actually available in English, current events uh, in Ukraine and Russia. But I don't know. I mean, it's just personally, I mean, I think, well, rather than what I think, I mean, there's a there's a book, Ukraine and the Empire of Capital, which, you know, as it predicts, Ukraine is in store for another Maidan, which will be much more bloody in all probability. Can you talk about the snipers and shootout from the tw- 2014 Maidan? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mentioned Ivan Kachanovsky earlier, who discovered the, um, the documents about, about the alleged German plot involving the OUN assassin to kill Roosevelt. Um, he's also the one who authored the first academic study on the so-called snipers massacre. And he basically determined beyond a reasonable doubt that it was a false flag massacre carried out by the far right to seize power. And at this point, I mean, there's large segments of Ukrainian officials today who acknowledge that basically to be true. And or at least that the shooters, that the real shooters were in opposition controlled buildings and that all the forensics points to you know, a lot of these protesters being shot in the back and, and stuff like that. It, it's it's crazy to think that, that people of Ukraine really put up with this almost five years later, that still no one's been prosecuted for, for that massacre. Oh, wow. None of, okay, I did not know that. Um, Can you just talk about how bloody the massacre is for people who may not be familiar? There were, it was, it was dozens of people were killed, mostly protesters, unarmed protesters, but then also police, which was like one of the first indications to people that third party may have been responsible and not government snipers who, as it turns out, were actually trying to shoot the real shooters who were shooting police and protesters. That's like the event that really just made it impossible for people to accept Yanukovych to stay in power, accepting that his administration was uh, responsible for that when all indications of that they weren't. Not that Yanukovych wasn't uh, extremely corrupt, uh, that his administration and police weren't abusing people. But yeah, no, I mean, that massacre was uh, not their doing. And it also makes you wonder, though, that the people who got away with it, like, since it was the far right, you know, if, if they'll just do it again. Or I think it's very ironic is if they ended up in trying to take power, was trying to uh, expose the, the lies about the massacre and somehow pin it on the current government. Like, I'm, I'm still waiting for some major political force in Ukraine to point fingers at somebody. What was the State Department's official narrative during that time? I said earlier, the State Department, I mean, I think like the U.S. government wanted to, and again, I'm not really an expert on this. I've been increasingly focusing on the history, but I think they they wanted the center-right politicians who were, you know, very friendly and had relations with the State Department. They wanted them to take power. And I think they probably were okay if not, if they didn't. I think they either liked the idea or were okay with the idea of the far right having a role to play. They wanted the center-right politicians to take power, which ultimately they did, but they, the center right politicians are catering to the far right. Of course, center right always like caters. To- <laughs> yeah, um, uh-huh. And I guess is the center right, how's their, what is their stance towards NATO? So, yeah, so these are the people who they wanted the, by center right, I mean pro Western, pro NATO people in Ukraine, but, or parties. But ironically, the, a lot of the far right doesn't even necessarily support NATO or the West, you know, for the, for them. 
it wasn't the Euromaidan. It wasn't uh, a so it wasn't a revolution to join the OS. It was to have their long-awaited nationalist revolution, which Azov is has openly said many times. Basically, that it's just waiting to topple the current government, and they threaten many times to do so. So it's I'm I'm not quite sure. I forget what Azov's position is on that, but I think that you know the U.S. government is going to find if Ukraine's far right. If Ukraine were really to have the neo-Nazi coup that uh, Russia has been talking about for years, um, you know, I think the U.S. government will find that that's a very, quote-unquote, anti-American government, just as much as it is anti-Russian. I know I kept you long enough. Do you have anything that you want to discuss that I forgot to ask you about? I guess that's the main, I mean, for me, the, yeah, for me, the main thing is in terms of this history is the, just the drama of, you know, that there were two, basically two factions. There were two OUNBs, basically, and the U.S. government thought that they could support the, and uplift the so-called moderate faction of the OUNB, Bandera, beyond the grave, really got the last laugh out of that relationship. and. It's not like the CIA or the U.S. government at all necessarily created or is responsible necessarily for, directly responsible for neo-Nazis you see today in Ukraine. It's it's very hard to imagine. Or I think things would have been very different. They had nothing to do with these people in the first place. Okay. Yeah, I've actually seen Howard Dean and everyone like, Howard Dean actually came very close to Holocaust denial at this point. Thank you for bringing a little bit of sanity back to this discussion and I really hope you continue with your research because I'm learning a lot. How do people find you? Oh, um, well, first of all, thank you so much. Also, uh, I have a Twitter, Moss Robinson, and then it's like a underscore, underscore, but it's my last name. It's spelled like Robeson, pronounced Robeson. But also last night, I actually found out that the first um, academic article I submitted is gonna be published. So so there's something coming. Uh, more for me on that. I I left school to work on this research project, so it's finally starting to amount to something. Well, I wish you all the luck in this and keep up the good work. And thanks again for coming. Um, I know we had a little bit of a delay. Hopefully we can get this. Like you, we just had a Russia expert, a real Russia expert. <laughs> um, I, sorry, I'm laughing at, um, you know, about the Internet Russia expert, right? Terrell's underscore Terrell Star, um, Russian Star. Okay, no, I'm not familiar, but I mean the oh. whole the oh. most quote unquote experts are are not experts. I found exactly like for example, he didn't know what the GRU was. Last week, he accidentally quote unquote accidentally went to this like Jewish cafe that was. Oh, oh, that one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, <laughs> that's why I was laughing because he's um he's a Fulbright scholar and a Russia expert, but um, oh, wow. because whenever I use Russia expert, it makes me think of him. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, have a great um rest of the day. All right. Well, thank you. Bye.